Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. tonight on joy and seeing what we're doing here uh, in the context or with the perspective of cultivating real happiness in our life. Sometimes the practice can get really serious And with so much emphasis on suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path leading to the end of suffering, uh, we can forget that this is really about happiness. So I just want to remind us all that that's what we're doing. And I'll first share a little bit about uh, my own evolution in in, uh, exploring this topic. When I first got into practice, I mentioned uh, at a previous talk just that I was really looking for something. And when I I finally found it, when I was first introduced to the teachings, I fell in love. It, It was, I had a long honeymoon period. Uh, where, wow, I'd found what I was looking for. I had one um, hesitation early on, but when that got resolved in my mind, uh, then I decided to go for it. And that is um, the first summer at, uh, at Naropa in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I'm, I'm a kind of intense person and passionate, and fortunately... I got passionate about something that chilled me out a bit. <clears throat> but that first summer, uh, I remember going one day to the, uh, uh, the class that Joseph was teaching, and I had my uh, New York Knicks t-shirt on. I was a, a huge sports fan, and I was a season ticket holder to the, to the Knicks in Madison Square Garden. The old days, if you're old enough to remember the days of uh, Willis Reed and Walt Frazier and Dave DeBusher, and I won't name the whole team. (laughs) Although I will tell you, Earl the Pearl was my favorite player, Earl the Pearl Monroe. Anyway, I was, there I was sitting in the the meditation one day, and I had my Knicks shirt on. And then I got into this reverie, uh, and I than just uh, about the Knicks. And then I had this awful thought um, that motivated me to go up and speak to Joseph for the first time, who I was in complete awe of, but it was motivating enough to go up and say, "Um, I have a question for you. Um, I'm a season ticket holder. 
to the New York Knicks. And uh, I, I just want to be sure, if I get into this, am I going to go to Madison Square Garden and watch a game and just say, nice shot, Frazier. <laughs> Good move, Havlicek. You know? Because I'm not ready quite to sign up for that, if that's where it's leading to. Um, and he gave me the perfect answer. He assured me, You'll you won't lose your enthusiasm. You'll probably just get over a loss sooner. I said, OK, I'm going for it. Yeah. And he was, you know, he was right. I still have the enthusiasm. And hopefully, I'm getting over losses sooner. Uh, actually, I'm nowhere near the fanatic that I used to be. But I still love sports. But anyway, after. That was resolved. I just went for it and had um, a long honeymoon period. Like I said, I just fell in love with the Dharma, and it was my salvation. And it was like, wow, I really see the possibility of, of freedom here. And that went on for several years. Did a lot of retreats, came here a lot, just like you're doing. At some point, I got very serious about my practice. Dead serious. <laughs> and I lost my joy. And somehow kind of mixed up or misinterpreted some of the, the teachings to say, misunderstand that it's not OK to enjoy life. Um, I, I remember sitting here and this really wonderful, um, profound master uh, ending each talk, may you speedily reach nibbana and escape from the woes of this world. You know? I thought, whoa, OK, what does that mean? And other misunderstandings that can easily lead to an idea that it's not OK to enjoy life and appreciate life. I'll share with you, this is not just unique to me. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. <clears throat> We've talked about him before. <clears throat> Great monastic and a very wise being. He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the imp impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. <laughs> or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. <laughs> this has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. 
But once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. The Buddha was called the happy one. And he said, go for the highest happiness and all the other happinesses, wholesome happinesses, can be experienced. The Dalai Lama starts out his wonderful book, The Art of Happiness, with the line, the purpose of life is to be happy. That's a good way to start a book. The purpose of life is to be happy. It's okay to give ourselves that. Because if we understand where true happiness lies, then we will be headed in the right direction of greater freedom. And it's easy to misunderstand given certain teachings that can confuse us or can can, and confused me. Here's here's one, um, the teaching on Samvega. Maybe some of you are familiar with this term, Samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A, which is a very um, important motivation for practicing wholeheartedly. This is one definition of Samvega from uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. Samvega, the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of our own complacency and foolishness in having let ourselves live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. You read that or you hear that and you say, whoa, the meaning, the futility and meaninglessness of life. And the operative phrase, which I hope you got, is the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. All of you, to some extent, have been touched in one way or another by this questioning of life as it's normally lived. Is that all there is? And some of you, as you practice, can come into a very profound questioning. What is life all about? Where can I find my meaning or its meaning? How can I show up fully when it's all just arising and passing anyway. But it's easy to hear something like that and say, oh, life is meaningless. What's the point? Let's get out of here as fast as we can. There's another another teaching also can easily lead to this feeling of mm, kind of somberness, the, the teaching on Nibbida, 
N-I-B-B-I-D-A, which is sometimes translated. Andy Olensky from uh, the Study Center uh, wrote a, a beautiful article on this. Uh, sometimes Nibida is translated in some translations as one should have utter disgust for the aggregates. One should have revulsion for the aggregates. Doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun, huh? One should have disgust for this body and mind or revulsion for this one or those out there. But as Andy points out in that, that essay, a more accurate translation of Nibbida is disenchantment. One should have disenchantment with regard to the aggregates. That is not being enchanted by them, not being under, breaking the spell of attachment to this body and mind or other packages out there of body and mind. That's very different. So with these, these various teachings, as I said, I lost my joy for a while. And when I, having gone through that period, when I came back to myself and realized this is not who I am, um, and I decided to just let my natural, at this point, the aspect of just of loving life and appreciating it come out in fullness uh, and not try to fit myself in some kind of box that I'd created for myself. I um, wanted to take a look at what the Buddha really said about happiness. Because as inspired as I've been by the Buddha, he was right on most everything that I've seen, and I wanted to see just where I'd gone wrong. And so I, I looked at the teachings and have been re-inspired to see them in this context of focusing and developing more true wholesomeness and happiness. And I find that particularly um, a motivation for practice. There are different motivations for practice, and some people can be extremely motivated by samvega and getting out of the meaninglessness and seeing all the defects of samsara and, and the urgency of, of this opportunity, which we are so gifted with. And some people are more motivated by seeing the possibility of real freedom and true happiness. So as I, I looked at the teachings, um, I, um, I became inspired not only for myself to, to re, uh, refocus uh, practice in that way, but also for all the people who might get into that same trap that, that I did. And happiness and joy are spoken about throughout the teachings. You know, joy, Sally gave a talk on the seven factors the other night. 
Joy is one of the factors of enlightenment. Suffering is not a factor of enlightenment. Joy is one of the four Brahma-viharas, one of the five jhana factors. And there's lots of different expressions of it from PT, rapture, or sukha, happiness, or peace, or gladness, pamoja, lots of different flavors of well-being. And so to, to see how we can cultivate this and uh, how we can use the teachings to cultivate it specifically. Mm. First, it's important to see, as with the awakening factors, that that joy or this urge for well-being, this well-being, expression of well-being, is inherent in us. We were born with natural joy. You know, you see a baby, and if he or she is fed and diaper changed and receives a little bit of love, what do they do? They squeal with delight. Wow, isn't life wonderful? That's why we love being around babies, because it kind of reminds us of that. And it's contagious. Oh, yeah, life is wonderful. Wow, look at that. Isn't she cute? (laughs) And you feel it yourself. And we sometimes can forget over time that it's right there in us, and it can be activated. And the same is true as an adult. If you put an adult in a, an MRI, fMRI machine, and that person um, doesn't have a physical pain or nor mental stress, that's a big one right there. If they're not stressed and they're free of pain, the, the natural expression of, uh, of that mind, what is lit up on, uh, in, in the brain, is uh, consciousness, creativity, calm, caring, and contentment. That's the natural expression when we're not dealing with dukkha one way or another. That's why when we say, oh, just see things clearly and naturally, loving kindness, compassion, joy, peace are the natural byproducts of this practice. And we all want to be happy, don't we? Anybody here not want to be happy? Now, if you've been having a grumpy day and you're holding your hand down and saying, but you'd really want to say, yeah, sometimes I like feeling grumpy, that's just your way of being happy in that moment. (laughs) Whatever turns you on. But there is a place inside of us that really wishes for well-being. And it governs most everything that you do. 
whether it's to minimize pain or maximize pleasure, or if you're here, maybe you see through that game and find other ways for real well-being, take a look and see what motivates you to do anything that you do. It might be misguided. It might lead you down alleys that you say, oh, what was I thinking? But your motivation behind pretty much whatever you do is for greater well-being. You want to be happy. And so as what we're doing, the one way I see what we're doing is activating, is getting in touch with and activating that place that is really rooting for our own happiness. First, getting clear on where happiness truly lies and then allowing that, giving that to ourselves. That's what we're doing. Now, you might think this is a little bit frivolous What am I, just kind of putting a smile on my face and saying, oh, everything's really okay? No. We're going for real happiness. And this is the first important piece of the puzzle, that is knowing where real happiness lies. It's not where we've been told that real happiness lies, as you can probably You don't have to guess, agree, as you could probably agree. But I'll read you um, Exhibit A in the um, conditioning that we're up against. This is an ad somebody gave me a while ago called The Gold Shivers. Beautiful woman, draped in gold, very happy. It's a two-page ad. This is The Gold Shivers. The gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. (laughs) Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. Second page, you can see. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement, when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye, to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. (laughs) Among life's pleasures, count this deeply deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. You might not even care for jewelry, but you read that and you say, oh, I want some too. (laughs) She seems pretty happy. It's very powerful. And even though you think you might know better, oh, it's just an ad, you know, it's just madmen doing their thing. It's very effective. And the average, by one study done about uh, a dozen years ago, which is, I think, very conservative now, the average American gets 3,000 messages like this every day. Every day. Yeah. Except if you're here. Then it's, what's for lunch? Right? 
we're having a fast from stimulation here. But this is what we're up against. And if, if you think that you're above that, just reflect on the fact that Coca-Cola or some big company will pay millions of dollars for 30 seconds of your time just so you can see somebody drinking a bottle of Coke with a big smile on their face. Mm. Now, they're not saying, oh, we're going to turn somebody on to this new drink that they never heard before. It's called Coca-Cola. They know you've seen it, but every time you see it like that with that smile on their face, there's a little neural pathway that gets set up in your mind that says, yeah, that feels good. So the first key is understanding where happiness lies. Let me ask you, we'll take a a couple of comments. Think of something that brings you joy. You might close your eyes for a moment. Some activity or experience. What brings you real joy? Just notice how it is just to think about it. Okay, and just take a few comments, just uh, by the time you can raise your hand. What brings you joy? Anyone? Yeah. My family's dog. What's that? My family's dog. Your family's dog, playing with your dog. That's always one of the ones that come up all the way in the back, yeah. Singing. Singing, yeah. Singing. Letting it out. Yeah. Conversation with a friend. Conversation with a friend, yeah. What? Dancing, yeah, beautiful. Um, playing with my friends, through, uh, two-year-olds. Yeah, playing with, uh, with children, your friends or your, your, your own uh, family. Anything else? Last one. What's that? My partner. Being with a loved one, with your partner, yeah. Did anybody say their jewelry? <laughs> no. All of those, that's why it's subversive. All of those things are free. We couldn't have a very effective consumer society if people kind of got that idea. So just seeing, okay, where does real happiness lie? And when I say happiness or joy, I'm not just talking about a big smile on, on your face and skipping through a field of daisies. There's lots of different flavors of really well-being. What it comes down to is well-being, whether it's, as I mentioned before, gladness or bliss or contentment or ease or peace. Lots of different flavors. All of these have to do with what are called wholesome states. So this is the, the, the first thing to, to look at as far as when I looked at the Buddhist teachings, seeing where happiness lies. And uh, there were, for me, three principles that stood out that I've been 
teaching. I, I, I teach a, a course that's both live and online. That's actually where I, I went the last couple of days. I flew back to California to teach this class. You know, Hi. Hi. Here I am, I'm coming back. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so I want to bring a little bit of this back. So in, in the course, and in, uh, I wrote a book on it. And it's, it's really based on three principles that have struck me about the Buddhist teaching. The first one being the teaching on wise effort. I'm sure you're familiar with that term, wise effort or right effort. One of the eightfold uh, path factors. Wise effort literally means one definition of wise effort has four components, two having to do with unwholesome states and two having to do with wholesome states. Unwholesome states, akusala, are states that are associated with suffering or that lead to suffering. States like jealousy, anger, fear, greed, hatred, delusion, all of those states of mind that have a kind of contracted quality to them. Think of how it is when you're angry or jealous or wanting or frightened, we contract. And it's just part of being human. It's not that you're bad for that. It's just that those are states, akusala states, that are associated with suffering and lead to more suffering unless you can be mindful of them. Wholesome states, states like love and kindness and compassion and equanimity and peace and patience and all of those and, and mindfulness, all of those states are expansive states. There you can feel it in your body and in your mind. There's a kind of opening to life. And they're called wholesome or kusala because they are associated with happiness and they lead to more happiness. And the Buddha said, actually, in a, in a famous discourse, he said, see what states lead to suffering. And if you don't want to suffer, then abandon those. And what states lead to happiness? And if you want true happiness, then cultivate those. So wise effort has to do with these two ends of the equation. One, to guard against unwholesome states before they arise. Two, if they have arisen, to overcome them or um, um, abandon them in some way. Okay? And that's what we're doing, one part of the equation of what we're doing here when an unwholesome state arises to use the tools that you're practicing so that you're not completely caught up in it and you can hold it in a different way. Not only hold it in a different way, but transform your experience into greater well-being. The other side of the equation, which is important for you to know, is 
cultivate wholesome states when they arise. Sorry, cultivate wholesome states that haven't arisen. This is a good thing to do, like we do the Brahma Viharas on Tuesday, or we bring more mindfulness, which is one of the best ways to cultivate wholesome states, or we cultivate generosity, or all of those states. He says, cultivate them. It's good. And then the fourth of the wise efforts is to maintain and increase wholesome states when they have arisen. He says that's a good thing to do. To maintain and increase wholesome states that have arisen. Not, uh-oh, I better not get attached, so let's, let's let go of this one. But the trick, the tricky thing is when there's a wholesome state that's arisen, what we often want to do is grasp onto it. Yeah, maintain and increase wholesome states. Yeah, bring it on. But when you say, I want more, that very thing is an unwholesome state of grasping. So it's a little bit tricky here how to maintain and increase wholesome states that have arisen without grasping. So that's the first principle to, uh, that uh, I'm, I've been exploring, to cultivate wholesome states and feel okay about it, and both in practice and in daily life. And when there's a wholesome state that has arisen, to allow it to increase. There's one, um, one discourse that pointed to the second principle about maintaining and increasing wholesome states in this one discourse in, in the Majjhima uh number 99, where he says the Buddha gives the example of um, being in the middle of a generous act, a very wholesome state, and his his suggestion is when you're in the middle of a generous act to reflect and think to yourself, oh, I'm being generous now. And he says, associated with that wholesome state, if you can reflect on it, there is a gladness that comes with it. Not if you're saying, Aren't I wonderful for being so generous? You know, or I hope everybody sees how generous I am. Hey, check it out. I'm pretty generous. You notice that? That's just more ego. But if you get in touch with how good it feels for generosity to move through you. Oh, it feels so good to just think of a time when you've just done a spontaneous, random act of kindness as it moves through you. How good that feels. He says, that's a really good thing to notice. And he says, there is a gladness that is connected with that wholesome state. And as the discourse goes, he says, that gladness connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. And he It says, one gains inspiration, one gains delight 
in the meaning and in the truth. Oh, it feels so good. It feels good to be good, doesn't it? So to pay attention to that gladness is really a good way to maintain and increase that wholesome state. Not by grasping, but by not missing it. Oh, this feels so good. Then you're motivated to want to experience it more because of the the expansiveness, the lack of dukkha when you're in the middle of that. Not because you're trying to be some saint or wonderful person, it just feels good. He says, don't miss that. And this is also in modern day neuroscience corroborated that when you pay attention to the goodness as it moves through you or to goodness wherever you see it, just like Ajahn Sumedho saying, when you pay attention to it, you deepen the connection and the neural pathways in your brain and in your heart that values that and that you are training yourself to take in the good. As my my friend uh, Rick Hansen, the uh, neuroscience guy who wrote a really good book, Buddha's Brain, uh, about neuroscience and and, uh, uh, dharma and, uh, and psychology, he says uh, his, his formula is to take in, when you're feeling true well-being, to spend about 30 seconds really taking it in. And he says, if you can do that six times in a day, I know that's three minutes, that's a lot, you know, but you don't have a whole lot other things in your schedule here anyway, right? If you can do that six times in a day for a two-week period, you will notice a dramatic shift in your well-being. Now, it might, you might need to do that more here because you don't have a whole lot of distractions to you know, fill the other time. So if you're only noticing unwholesome states, all the rest of the day, you know, I would just say, you know, you might up that a little bit more. But what happens is that you are, you're deepening those neural pathways of seeing the good, and you also are starting to have your radar out for the goodness in your life. And this is something to consider that it takes practice to have your radar out for the good, for many of us. Not for everybody, but for many of us, we are more inclined to notice what's not good. And it's not our fault either. We are wired up that way. In the, in the brain, there's this almond-shaped cluster of neurons called the amygdala, which is part of our survival system that scans the horizon for what can go wrong. And it activates the sympathetic nervous system, the flight, 
fight, or freeze. And we are scanning the horizon for what can go wrong. As Rick says, our brains are um, Teflon for negative experiences and Velcro for, sorry, Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative experiences because the negative ones stick. And I read one study that says um, if you're having some, having a, a, if something bad happens to you, something negative, there's a negative interaction that you have with somebody, for instance, it takes seven positive moments to counteract the effect of that negative one. I don't know how they figured that out, but that's in one study, I remember reading that, seven to one. So we are often wired up for what can go wrong. It takes practice to notice what can go right. But what else are you going to do here? Right? You don't just have to focus on what can go wrong. So that's the second principle. One is to notice wholesome states. And two, to take in or connect with the gladness, that feeling of well-being associated with it. And then the third principle of the teachings that really struck me, very simple um, teaching. It might have been already uh, said here from Majima 19 that says, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? Whatever you frequently think and ponder upon, that becomes the inclination of your mind. And if you frequently think and ponder upon how your, your practice is, is awful, or life is terrible, or I know where this is going, it's going downhill, or whatever, you will have ample evidence because that's what you'll look for. Or if everybody, everybody around is a jerk and they're going to disappoint you, that's where you'll have your radar out if you go through life looking like that, looking through that lens, and you'll have lots of confirmation. If you frequently think and ponder upon how amazing it is to be alive, how really underneath whatever is going on outside with somebody, we all want to be loved, we all want to feel safe, we all want to uh, connect. Um, that's a very different lens. Or how how nature is just so amazing and beautiful. You know, if you notice those things, that becomes another lens that you're looking through. Now, I'm not saying to just look through rose-colored glasses, but to remember life is made of 10,000 joys as well as 10,000 sorrows. And if you just focus on the sorrows, it gets very heavy. And particularly, mention one thing. If you are, I can see this is going to be a more than uh, tonight's talk. It's going to be two, who knows, maybe even three part talk, but just kind of 
starting off tonight. Um, it's a 10-month course, so I've got a lot to say, you know. Um, so if you really feel the pain of the world and are um, saddened by that, yeah, it can be a kind of um, somber picture. And sometimes people, you know, take the course and they say, you know, jo- joy, you know, come on, there's a world that's in pain. There's a lot of suffering. How can I let myself feel joy? You know, I, I this one guy in, in, the, in the course stood up, it was the first night, and he was talking about that. I don't know about all this joy stuff. What about all this? And uh, we, he said, it's like we're all just, are we all just sitting around singing some, uh, someone's singing Lord Kumbaya, you know? And I, I called it, oh, it's the Kumbaya factor. That's what I started to call it. And, and it's a very good argument to not let ourselves feel well-being and joy. And I wanted to read to you from um, the, the great historian Howard Zinn, who wrote um, The People's History of the United States, the, the not whitewashed version, the real story of the United States. He's a realist, right? And this is, and he died a couple of years ago. Um, this is from an essay, The Optimism of Uncertainty. He says, an optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness, What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. We get the news that comes to us because it's designed to shock us. That's the way the media is built. You don't have a lot of news stories of, oh, so-and-so was so nice to his neighbor. You know, It's not going to sell news. So we get bombarded with everything going wrong, maybe with a few human interest and feature stories in there to kind of keep you reading and not be completely you know, bummed out. But if you take a look around, that's not the, sto- the whole story. There's so much goodness in the world. There's so much goodness inside and around us. And the key is to be looking for it, to not miss it when it's here. And when it's going on inside of us, to not just know, oh, feeling pretty good right now, what's next? You know? But to actually feel what it's like to feel good. That's what we're talking about. So with that in mind, those principles, 
maybe in the time they have left, just talk about a couple of wholesome states, and we'll maybe explore more next time, just seeing how this works. The first one, by the way, that, that I uh, write about and, uh, and, and, and teach is what I talked about the last talk, intention, that is having having the intention to face in the direction of true well-being and happiness. Once you make that decision, then everything is held in the context of this is what I'm creating for, for myself and for life. And it's important to see that as you get in touch with true well-being, everybody benefits from it. Because then there's an expansiveness, there's a, a giving to life. As I, I love uh, Shanti Deva's line from uh, Bod- The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, he says, when you're opening to awakening, it lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. So your own awakening and your own well-being and happiness, if it's true happiness, is something that expresses itself one way or another. You can't hold on to it, especially as you get more and more clear on the fact that it's not you anyway. It's just coming through you, and then you let it come through. So it has a rippling effect. So that's the first key, and we've spoken about that um, last time. So I'll just move on to um, one or two more. So the second wholesome state, which is what we're practicing here, is the key to well-being, and that is cultivating mindfulness. As the Buddha says in the Satipatthana Sutta, there is one direct way or most wonderful way to overcome sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, end pain and anxiety, and realize the highest happiness. And that is the establishment of mindfulness. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Out of all the the mental factors, you know, there's 52 mental factors. I don't know if Sally went into this uh, the other night, but there's wholesome factors and unwholesome factors, and seven of awakening factors are in there, and there's common factors, you know, and, and particular factors that arise from time to time. And out of all of those factors, those 52 factors, kind of like the deck that you're, you're dealt, right? Out of all of those factors, One factor has the unique property of weakening unwholesome states and strengthening wholesome states. And that is mindfulness. That's how it works. Every single moment that you're mindful, you are weakening greed, hatred, and delusion and you are strengthening non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, non-greed, generosity or ability to let go, non-hatred, kindness, 
and non-delusion clarity. Just in the moment of mindfulness, it's so amazing, it's so simple. It doesn't seem like much might be happening if you say, oh, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. Do I really have to pay attention? We just had one a moment ago. Breathing in, breathing out. You know, Every moment of mindfulness is cultivating wholesome states and is creating the possibility for the highest happiness. It does that by being present. And also, if you happen to not be present and got lost in confusion, in anger or fear or wanting or whatever, in the moment that you're mindful, you are interrupting that unwholesome state. You know, you ever have that? I'm sure you have that experience. You know, oh, you're completely in the story, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, you know, I'm being angry right now. Oh, look at that. Actually, let's see. I'll read you one passage on this that I really like. This is from. Sylvia Borstein, my good friend, she tells a story, she told this at one of the classes, about how becoming aware of what she was thinking with mindfulness helped reframe an experience. One evening when she was staying in New York City, she'd arranged to meet a friend for a theater performance and decided to take a bus to get there. As the bus crept along through the heavy traffic, Sylvia started worrying, I'm going to be late. I'll miss the curtain. My friend will worry about what happened to me. I shouldn't have taken the bus. The subway would have been so much faster. Figuring she could walk faster than the bus was going, Sylvia got off. And of course, as I'm walking, the bus passes me by. And now I'm thinking, I should have taken a cab. Sylvia's been meditating for years, but she's also, by her own admission, been fretting for years, so it was an easy reaction to fall into. Continuing her story, she describes running down Broadway in high heels with a cold wind whipping around her. And then, all of a sudden, I have the thought, what am I doing? Oh, I'm grumbling. That's a moment of mindfulness. Up until then, I was caught up in a habit-driven narrative, an editorial comment about what was happening. The moment at which the mind says, Sylvia, you're grumbling, the lens switches, and suddenly the truth of that moment is, I'm a 71-year-old woman running down Broadway in the middle of winter in high heels. That is far out. That is an extremely fortunate thing to be able to do. It changed everything. I felt proud, and I actually hoped a lot of people saw me. In just a moment of being mindful, you step out of the bad dream. Oh, that's what's happening. Oh, freaking out. That's what's going on. You know, that's, that's one of my, my default notes. Oh, freaking out. You know, oh, confused. That's what's going on. So that's one way that mindfulness works. Another way that mindfulness works is that when you are 
feeling a wholesome state, when you pay attention to it, you increase it. It amplifies the wholesome state. And as an example, we'll just move on to one more wholesome state. And that is the state of gratitude. And you can see how mindfulness amplifies gratitude. Gratitude is a very direct way to open up the heart. To reflect on the blessings in your life. The, the, the Buddha has this, the beautiful Mangala Sutta, all the blessings that one should reflect on, including to be grateful and content. This is a blessing supreme. He says, reflect on all of these blessings in your life. And when you're feeling kind of bummed out or thinking, oh, life isn't treating you fair, everybody here has extraordinary karma. Don't miss it. Just as, a, as an example of how, um, how mindfulness supports gratitude, close your eyes for a moment and think of some blessing in your life. There's someone or something that you're grateful for. You might have an image of that person or that situation. And as you get in touch with it, with that person or circumstance, just give a very simple, sincere, silent thank you from the heart. Thank you. And now let your awareness really feel how good it feels, the grateful heart. How does it feel in your body, in your mind? Oh, thank you. You can take another breath. And you might bring to mind another blessing, someone or something. Have an image. Again, a simple thank you. Thank you. And then just relax in that feeling of well-being. Feel it in the body, in the mind. Here it is. Another 30 seconds to take in. Okay, you can open your eyes if you like. Do you get the idea? Whenever you're having those moments of well-being, all it takes is a few moments to reflect on how blessed you are. Ah, And it creates the space, it creates the container with which to process all the hard stuff. I'm not saying don't look at the hard stuff. In fact, maybe next time on the next, next talk, I'll talk a little bit about how opening to the hard stuff is a very direct path to well-being. That's what the Buddha said. But to notice those moments of well-being when they're here, when they arise, this is a very healthy part of our practice. 
not to pretend, not to dismiss, and to feel everything fully. For me, what real joy and well-being is about is being, as, being completely authentic, not pretending it's anything other than what it is, being connected to your experience, and through that there's an aliveness that comes. Happy people are not happy all the time but they're engaged and they're able to open up to the whole show. And as you open up to the whole show, nothing is left out. And then all the goodness and the love that can hold it is more available. And gratitude, particularly, just leave you with that one. Gratitude is like, as, as one teacher talks about, it's like putting out your satellite dish to receive all the blessings. If you're, if you're kind of in a mode where, yeah, everything is bad, and you're just grumbling and complaining, there's no room for the goodness to get in. You can't, can't see it. But if you can keep your heart open, not forced, but not to miss all the goodness and the blessings, then it's like in that saying, thank you, you have your satellite dish open for them to come in. So I think we'll have to stop here and uh, continue on uh, with the next, uh, the next talk. I just want you to keep in mind as you're practicing, this is not just about coming to grips with suffering. This is about truly opening to well-being. And let's see. I'll end with a, oh, I know what I'll end with. I'll end with the Shantideva quote, the whole quote from chapter three in the Bodhisattva Guide. As a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. Let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.